Welcome to Permaculture Freedom Podcast. My name is Cody and I'm your host. This is a show about cultivating freedom in our lives so we can be our best self. Freedom to live a beautiful, regenerative lifestyle that inspires our families, our friends, and our community. To transform our lives and reconnect to nature within. It's a revival of our roots. Roots that run deep into the earth. We were born for this time. We were born for this time. Thanks for joining me on this beautiful journey. Thanks for showing up. I think there's something really special about getting to work with your hands every day. This true connection that comes from it, that you're actually touching meat, you get to kind of see this animal from the inside out. And at the same time, you're using these knives and taking these strokes that are very much like a moving meditation. So the actual act of butchering is a really physical job. When you picture you know, a big, kind of burly guy back there throwing around a big slab of meat, well, it kind of makes sense. Right? But when you watch Kate do it, like Kate's judoing the meat. What it takes in terms of just being able to lift certain pieces and pull certain pieces away from one another. She's got this finesse about her um, when she breaks an animal down that I think is really fun to watch. daughters were a whole animal butcher shop so we bring in whole animals and we cut everything down nose to tail by hand. Kate and Josh above all else are incredibly talented butchers and so the way the meat is handled um, when you buy a whole animal versus when you buy you know primal cuts let's say or individual cuts of meat uh, it's different you butcher it really close to the point of sale. This means a couple of different things it means that we get a chance to cut some of the smaller steaks that a bigger packing house wouldn't want to take the time and energy to cut. Um, and so we have a wider variety of steaks that you may or may not heard of. Kate is not a butcher to be a butcher. As a child, I made a very heated decision that I wanted to be a vegetarian. I had seen the movie Babe, and it made a really big impact on me. As a kid, it was about ethical treatment of animals not quite understanding the role that death plays in our food system yet. I was little. Um, and then as it evolved, it became an environmental concern. I started looking a lot at land management programs that helped restore native grasslands. I just really fell in love with their sort of oceanic quality. They're just so big and so vast, so beautiful the way they move with the wind and the little tiny ecosystems within them. And when you're walking through the grasslands, there's all these birds and small mammals and insect activity. And it's just kind of an incredible organism. There aren't a lot of native grasslands left, but when the grasslands comprised 40% of the land mass of the United States, that they sequestered more carbon than most rainforests. So native grasses like to eat three and four sided carbon molecules and then they put them down into the soil. And so they have this really incredible potential for offsetting 
greenhouse gas emissions, um, but only if they're managed appropriately. And I became so interested in this that I started looking at systems that people were using to restore grasslands, and one of them is grazing cattle in really particular ways. And so I decided that the best way to support farmers and ranchers that were utilizing these regenerative agricultural practices was to start eating meat again. Kate's a butcher because she understands that this piece fits into a much broader piece about sustainability and ecology and food systems. Not butchery for the sake of meat, it's butchery for the sake of how it impacts our planet. It's a very real thing that happens where landscapes start to actually change based on what the demand is for the food product system, right? By making those choices, by sourcing those things the way that she's sourcing them. There you go. We did a lot of cold calling when Western Daughters started. Uh, we were looking for 100% grass-fed beef and lamb. And at the time in Colorado, there weren't a lot of ranchers producing it. And some of the ones that were had no faith that this tiny butcher shop would do what it said it, what we said it was going to do. If I recall correctly, Clint and Mary Kay were some of the first people to be on board. Uh, they have one of the only multi-species farm in the area, and so they raise cattle, they raise sheep, they raise pork, they raise chickens, just become very close friends. It was a good life. This, this part of being a butcher is really about being a collaborator with farmers and ranchers. But she becomes kind of a nodal point between all of these different producers um, because suddenly you have a market for a hog that's raised a certain way gives a producer the ability to raise hogs then that way because they know that there's an end market for that product. And everybody thinks you're crazy at first, right? Oh yeah, we got laughed off the off the phone. Oh, yeah. And then it's like, well, guess what? We're making this work. So. Well, and I think there's a rebellious nature too in wanting to change the system and do things differently. Totally, you got to keep poking the bear. Yeah, you really do. You can't be complacent with it. We're really committed to making sure that these sustainable operations for farmers and ranchers are also financially sustainable for them. And so over 50 cents of every dollar you spend here goes back to a farm or a ranch, um, as opposed to somewhere around 10 cents or less at the grocery store. So we've also given over $3 million back to the local farming and ranching community in six years, which I think is probably our biggest point of pride. Spent the last six years at Western Daughters looking at how we can heal land. And we've learned in the process that a lot of people are coming to this food to heal their bodies. Looking to heal their guts, looking to heal or manage autoimmune diseases. And I think it's been really incredible to watch people feel good. But the flavor is really impacted at the start. So the flavor starts with what's happening in the soil, what's happening with the grasses. Tastes like beef, it has actual flavor. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't have a blandness that requires like marinades and over seasoning. You taste the beef for what it is. When food is good for the land, when you're raising, whether it's a vegetable or an animal, that it by default is better for your body. Because these cattle are out and foraging, it means that they're intaking more nutrients, um, more vitamins A, D, E, and K. 
And so we like to ask this question of how can we heal land, bodies, and communities? And I really believe that food has the power to do this, that we get to form ties and bonds between a rural and an urban environment and create community around, around this common interest, this table of food. This is part four of a series, A Butcher Demonstrates the Correct Way to Process a Deer. In this episode, you're going to see some very simple equipment that anybody can purchase on Amazon that will help you to butcher a deer or any other farm animal that you're butchering for your family. Uh, the equipment is very simple, very basic. So check out this episode and make sure to watch the whole series you can find the playlist with all the videos. There's more coming. Jason, for this is venison you cannot buy. What we're going to do here, what he's been aging these deer, now he's going to cut them up and show us how to have the kind of quality meat that we talked about it in a recent video. You can check that video out here. Uh, how this quality meat, you can't buy it. No amount of money can put it on your table. Only hard work and some knowledge, which Jay's going to share with us now. So let's start, Jay. All right. A uh, couple things we're going to need is a boning hook. Get yourself a boning hook. Very important. It's going to save your fingers. It's going to save your hands. Um, and it'll be more accurate with your cutting. And uh, I think this is 4 to $7, I don't remember. Uh, this is a 4 and 3 quarter inch boning hook. Very important. It's my one of my favorite tools. One of my uh, ones very necessary to keep my fingers in place. Um, plus it acts as an extra hand. And I'll show you that in a minute. Get yourself a, a breaking knife. This is what this is called, or steak knife or whatever. You don't need a, a super huge knife. You don't need huge knives because we're not doing anything huge. So it's just a breaking knife. I think it's a nine or 10 inch breaking knife. I got this from Koch Supplies. Um, this is a five inch boning knife. It's a stiff blade, not flexible. Um, this is a Forstner. I hope I'm saying that right. And uh, this is an expensive knife, but if you take care of it, it'll last your lifetime. Get yourself a steel. Uh, I do not recommend using a polished steel if you've never used one before. You're going to ruin a knife. So get yourself a, uh, a medium coarse or a medium fine steel. Uh, they're going to be cheaper if that's what you're going to start out with. You, you have the polished steel, if you don't know what you're doing, you're, you're just wasting your time. So don't get one of these. If you're new to this, get a medium one. Right, this is a, uh, a medium steel. Uh, it's nothing fancy. Nella is the name of it. I don't even know where this came from. I've had it forever. But this is a steel you can use to get started with and learn how to use it properly. Uh, and, and you'll be able to keep an edge even if you really don't know what you're doing. So this will help out. But the polished one here is is very smooth. Um, you can see the grooves in this, I hope. Um, can you see the grooves, Austin? Yep. Okay. This is a medium one, and this is a polished. It's, it's just about smooth. Uh, so this will help you starting out. This is when you get experienced. Um, get yourself some gambrels. This is a hot gambrel uh, or spreader, however you want to call it. Uh, this is a, a nice thing to hang animals with. It's light. It holds up to 350 pounds. I don't think you're going to have to do that big anyway, and uh, it'll keep the animals from from falling off the, you know, going all over the place. Uh, and then you can also do other stuff if you have lambs, sheep, or goats, or or pigs, you can use this for pigs, that's what it's made for, and you can use one of those. So get yourself that. 
I do not have a block and tackle here to show you that I have with me that I bring into the woods uh, in case we, like we used a couple weeks ago to dress a deer. This is a 25 inch meat saw. Okay, this is this is an old saw. These are all the internet. Um, I don't know if we're going to have some links to show or whatever later, but you know everything will be at the at the bottom. Um, get a 25 inch saw. Do not get one of the small packing saws, the 17 inch or 19s or whatever they are. And do not get a 30 because that's just way overkill. Your arm's going to fall off when you get done using. It. 25 inch is a good all-purpose meat saw. They're not expensive. I think you can buy a saw with 12 blades for 60 or 70 dollars, and then you can just buy replacement blades after that. And uh, this is a must-have too. It just it makes things a lot easier. Even though you don't need it, I'll still use it because I'm getting older now. My body can't move stuff around like it used to. It's heavy, so we cut things up a little bit more. And these tabletops. Stop by your local grocery store. Sometimes they throw them away. Really? No way. It's $300 a piece. Yeah. So, you know, so like these are all used. I got these from awesome. friends of mine that, hey, you want some tops? Sure. Awesome. Because they, they swap them out once a year, every yeah. other year, whatever, and they throw them in the garbage. If you've got somebody that works at a store, I tell them to keep their eyes open for these cutting boards. What's nice about these is they can be a perfect fit if you have a skill saw. Yeah. You can fit anything you want. Yep. You know, once you cut them, you're done, but if you need to cut smaller, very simple, draw a line on it. That's how I did these. Awesome. So custom fit, because they're yeah. a lot longer than I need them. Perfect. Um, but that's just an extra tip. Yeah, I love that. Just keep an eye out for cutting boards, because you can, and you, you don't even need a stainless steel table. You can have a wooden table. You can yep. screw this to two by four legs or something. Good to go. Just to make it work. Yep. Uh, and the, the last thing you don't want is a stainless steel table to cut up. Okay. That'll really be nice. All right. And make for a really bad experience. So, so cut only on nice... Wood, wood by far. Okay. The old butcher block, the yeah. old school one, is the best thing to use because it doesn't dull your knives. Got it. They're harder to clean, but they honestly, they grow less bacteria than these do. Really? Yeah. But these are real, real hard on the knife too, plastic boards. So. Great. This stuff is laying around everywhere. Yeah, you don't know. Yep. Um, another thing to do if you know you may be interested in a bandsaw or a commercial grinder, which probably not, it's going to be three phase, is the uh, grocery store yeah. closeouts, the buyouts. Um, they advertise oh, all yeah. Time. But what's nice about this stuff here is even if it's three phase, you can convert it into single phase. Go to Cracks Buy and Buy Motor. Yep. That's what I did here. This was a three phase. I've got a 220 motor on here. Runs good. Done. You know, and that grinder, forget about it. Not <laughs> big enough for that. But um, little tabletop grinders, they have. Yeah, that's what we have. A little. I got a one horsepower, which for one or two deer on a Saturday is going to be fine. Yeah, you don't need nothing big and elaborate no. to make this enjoyable. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, after the hunt is over and yeah. everything's good, nobody wants to do it. <laughs> Especially if it's if it's going to be a pain. Yeah, but if you set up properly, that's the difference, right? Right, because I can enjoy I can enjoy the breaking down. I can enjoy the butchering if I'm working at a comfortable height. If I got sharp knives, a good working space, I can make a mess. I'm not in my you know, there's been times I've butchered a deer in my mother-in-law's kitchen, and you're afraid to, you know, make a big mess in your mother-in-law's kitchen. So just get yourself the right workspace, work standing up tall with some sharp knives, 
put on the radio, you got a buddy helping you out. I mean, you can have a really fun day at it if you set it up right. If you're rushing it and just, you know, you got your dull old knives and you're trying to work off the back of a pickup, it's not going to be fun. Yet. And if you don't have the heart or the will or want to do this, then don't. Yeah. Drop it off and let some guy do it, take care of it for you. But, uh, you know, this, for me, the hunt is great, but this is even better. Yeah. Because after all said and done to where we are today, the stuff that we're going to do right now. Yep, this is where. Is where, you know, the elevator meets the road. Yeah. All the equipment that Jay showed in this video, you can find links below. The links will bring you to Amazon. You'll help support this channel and the production of the videos without spending a penny extra on the purchasing of this equipment. Thank you for your support, and we'll see you in the next video. What's up, guys? This is Jason over here at Cockyle Farm. This is part two of the whole hog workshop put on by Hand Hewn Farm. In part two of this video series, this is going to be all about tools and cutlery, knives and knife sharpening, the, the butcher block, how to clean, a lot of stuff to do with safety. And since I'm so obsessed with knife sharpening and knives and old knives, this one really meant something to me. So hope you all enjoy part two. sure how sharp a knife is doing this doesn't tell you anything actually because um, you're raking your fingers across the blade when we test knives we'll do what we call three finger test if you put your take your dominant hand put your thumb on the back and use these three fingers but you don't move them across you move them with the blade back and forth like this which seems like it would cut you but this knife is really dull and I know that because my fingers can tell me very quickly, oh, I can press down harder and still do this. You can see my fingers, the pads are mm -hmm. like depressed there, but I can move my fingers along there and it's not gonna cut them. And then if we take another knife that is not as dull, this one is a little bit sharper, but not as good as it should be. Your brain is pretty good at saying, nah, that's hard enough. Um, this one is real close to being stupid sharp. And that one's sharper still. <laughs> and it's kind of fun once you know how to do that in practice. You can go up to any knife and you can have your eyes closed. Kind of a fun thing to know. So I'm going to work on uh, Matt's knife and maybe a couple of these other ones. I'll use the different stones. But you'll hear the difference as I'm grinding these. They, uh, the rough grit is really for just reconditioning edges and bevels. And then as I move to finer grits, you'll, it'll get much quieter <laughs> as I'm grinding the metal away. They do have jigs that you can put on these on the knife that'll set it out, and there are different systems that you, know, you can draw your knife through that keeps the angle. Usually, yeah, between like 15 and 20 degrees is usually where I end up. And if you ever learn, if you start learning this, or try to teach yourself, you know that this is 90 degrees, it's perpendicular. 
and half of that roughly is 45 and then half of that is 22 and a half so if you start at that angle that's pretty good now on these knives that's steeper right. than I like so I go down a little bit so I'm probably 20 or under but I don't pay that much attention right. to it it's just uh, I've done it enough that I just kind of know how to hold the knife when I'm doing it um, this one I'm going to pass around um, one side, the edge is almost reconditioned. There's a little bit of a bulge in it that will come out, but I'm trying to grind down in the middle of this one side that has the, the words on it. You can see where it's the edge that I'm grinding hasn't come all the way out. And then I don't need this stone really for anything else. This next grit is a 600, and then on the other side of this is a 1,000, then I've got a 1,200 grit, and then the really fine stone I think is 6,000. It's either four or six. So by the time you get up to that point, if you're your angles have met up on both sides you'll roll over a burr and once you get rid of that burr you have a an acute edge that is good for cutting meat and other things as we try to use high carbon it takes an edge a lot better and depending on its hardness the way it's tempered uh, can keep an edge longer and they look cooler we do have one stainless knife here it's this one and it works fine, it's just not as fun to sharpen, it doesn't look as cool, so. And then there's the flexibility of knives, which comes in handy later on when you're cutting around bone and things like that, things like that. This knife is fairly flexible, whereas this knife doesn't have, really have any flex. So this is real good for slicing um, larger cuts. This is the knife that Doug and I usually use for beef. Um, but there are times when having a little bit of flex to the knife is nice like Ben when you were cutting out the backside of that pig and I showed you the flex so you know like it's very easy to see when you're putting pressure against something it's really nice to keep it against the bone so it stays right against the bone when you're uh, cutting muscle away from it when we're cutting today there are two main ways that will tell you to hold the knife and this one is when you're doing long cuts when you want to use the entire blade if you're cutting through the belly or something like that. Um, but there are times where it is helpful to hold the knife like this or like this, and that's usually when you want to control the tip of the knife. You have a lot more articulation that way, so you can get around bones and, and ribs and things like that. It's good to be conscious that the knife is sharp and can cut you. And usually someone cuts themselves with the tip because they're not paying attention to where their other hand is, and the knife slips out and it's like... So, be conscious of that because the tips of most of these knives are sharp. Because we don't want to use stainless, uh, we want to use butcher block because we want to be able to cut directly on it. Um, the bleach would be our enemy here. There are there are things living in this wood that we want to be living there. We don't want to kill them. And so, uh, but we want this to be clean, not sterile, uh, but sanitized, disinfected minimally. And so we do a couple things to maintain that. So what I'll do typically uh, is I'll wipe it down with just a hot rag, what I did this morning because the tables were already in good condition. If they get bloody, blood is what we don't want on the tables. Blood is like the the best way for pathogens to, uh, to multiply. We don't want that. So as soon as there's blood on the table, we try to wipe it up pretty quick. Um, then 
If I feel like they are really compromised, oftentimes if we did a beef cow or venison or something that is a little harder to bleed out as thoroughly as the pig, uh, if we feel like they're compromised in any way, I will take um, hot water and like 50% uh, white wine vinegar or just, or just distilled vinegar. Um, and I will use that to wipe the tops down. And what that's doing is it's acting as a disinfectant, um, but also it, it lowers the pH uh, vinegar does of the, of the microbial uh, life in the wood. And then as an additional uh, step, I take uh, cheap salt. It's the only time we used iodized salt. But I'll take uh, cheap salt and I'll just sprinkle it all over the table and I will literally just hand scrub the wood with my hands. And the salt acts as a purifier, disinfectant, but it also acts as an aggregate. And it will, it will scrape up anything that may be still stuck in the wood that wants to come up. And then I'll bench knife it clean uh, and then just wipe it down with hot water. And that's it. Like that's, that's blood and that should weird me out, but I know the, the hard maple. So this is also hard maple. It's not just wood that is slapped, slammed together. Because it's hard maple, it's incredibly dense and, and not much is going to soak into it. Uh, so I'm not concerned about it. However, as I said, I don't want blood on the table. I don't want blood living in this, in this wood. So we wipe that up and it comes right up. We've had some folks <coughs> sign up for workshops that are very, very particular about food safety, and we are too. Like, the reason we do this is for food. There are just different schools of thought about that, and stainless steel and bleach are not our idea of food safety. We've made all kinds of food on these tables, and to our knowledge, no one's died yet. <laughs> so I don't know what more you need. They did, they didn't tell us. That's right. <laughs> If there are little crevices and cracks on these used tables, and there are, we leave the salt in there. Right? There's no reason to try to clean it all out. The salt is going to ensure that nothing bad is going to be living in here. So wherever there are, again, we bought these used, and they have been used for many years. If there are little pinholes, the salt lives in there, which tells me that nothing else ever will. That's how we treat our tabletops, and we feel pretty good about it. Uh, we go and drop a, a pig or two on here, and it, in no time, everything is covered in oil. Edge grain wood. So this is hard maple. It's on edge. Uh, you guys have probably seen. You guys have probably Very seen end grain cutting boards. Yes. Where instead, this would be end grain, right? So if you had a bunch of sections like this only standing up, mm -hmm. then you'd be looking at the end of each stick of wood instead of the edge of each piece. So if these were on their sides, like this would be face grain, this is edge grain, this is end grain. End grain cutting boards are the best. Um, they're what you would get like a cutting board if you have a bunch of little squares you're looking at. Typically those are made of uh, maple, often with walnut just for color. Um, and those end grain ones the reason that they're the best is because the wood is incredibly dense that way and it's self-healing. So when you go to cut into it or chop into it with a cleaver, it, the, the, the grain pretty much closes itself back up. As opposed to face grain, which is the opposite of that, when you go to cut it, you're going to just have a scar there for its life. Uh, these tables uh, are, in, are edge grain and they're, they're dense enough that they're not a concern for us. However, we have learned the hard way when we hand a cleaver off to somebody or a cleaver and a mallet, we now have them go along the, the grain. So I would have you stand here and hit.
instead of this. It won't heal when you cut across the grain like that. I've been close And here I stand Nothing to show I get lost Looking for who I am I'm This is such good news for me. Well, look at that beautiful carcass. Well, I was just editing the video on dealing with carcasses and caring for meat and stuff, and I just wanted to say a few opening statements, I guess, things I thought of. Now, the reason I did this video is because I just remember going through the process of trying to figure all this out, and, you know, you read, if you do research and read about it, you're going to find kind of the usual university extension information, USDA-type stuff that is actually very conservative, and they'll tend to give you, like, you know, numbers to follow and stuff like that. And if you put yourself in the kinds of positions that I do and have for a long time, living without electricity or with just, like, a refrigerator or not wanting to avail yourself of, you know, big coolers in town to sort, you know, to age meat or store it for a while and all that stuff. If uh, it's cold outside, and that's great. I mean, if it's, if it's very cold or it's very cold at night or something like that, that makes everything a lot easier. Like for me, almost every time I have a carcass, you know, it's not ideal conditions for sure. So then what that means, what I'm saying is that information becomes kind of useless to you because you look at it and you're like, well, what do, what do I do in this situation, you know? And so over the years, I've just kind of adapted strategies and gotten kind of an intuitive feel for what I can get away with and what I need to do to get a carcass through and cared for well. Now, the other thing is that people might worry about spoilage and like, is this meat going to kill you or something like that? Now, this, I guess, is just my opinion, but, it, you know, I think of the way that animals that you buy at the meat counter and grocery stores and stuff are raised and and then processed and then you know the refrigeration thing and how old they are by the time you get them is all pretty disgusting to me um you know what i view my what i do is much cleaner and yeah sure there's all kinds of sources of bacteria around when i'm processing meat and there's the potential for infection and spoilage and all of that but you know i'm not like getting an animal that's been living basically in a cesspool of disease and filth you know, and then it's like gone through who knows what process. I mean, you don't get to see what happens in those plants. But let's face it, the strict like food handling safety rules that are on the back of your meat package are there because of the way these, these processes are carried out, the way these animals are raised. And, you know, they've bred, now we've bred like these super pathogens that make people really sick. And the meat, you know, can be contaminated with salmonella and, you know, these strains of E. coli that are extremely dangerous and can kill you. So, yeah, I think of what I do is much cleaner, even if my meat starts to go off, um, which, you know, doesn't happen to me anymore. But if it did, I don't, I don't even worry about that. Like most of the people that I know who do this kind of stuff and, you know, myself would probably tell you that, if meat is going funky, but it has never been cooked and it's still raw and you clean it up best you can and cook it well, uh, it's probably not going to make you sick at all. And I've tested that myself quite a bit. And, you know, I'm not telling you what to do or to do that. I'm just saying that um, what we think of as spoilage it may not be, um, how do I say this? 
basically the because of the way that animals are raised in these really disgusting crowded conditions it's like a city right where you spread disease and we've got like antibiotic resistant stuff growing and these these terrible strains of, of uh, pathogenic bacteria and stuff you know i'm not dealing with any of that stuff and if i understand that you know i need to cook cook the stuff before i eat it and all that you know everything's just fine and i I, th I just think of my whole process and all the stuff i do as much much cleaner and safer than anything i could buy that, that's what i'm saying but if uh, you're new to preserving food and dealing with stuff like this it takes a little time to build confidence and you're just used to eating the stuff from the store and you know you have built kind of it hasn't made you sick maybe hopefully and of or not that you know of and you uh have built like trust in that so eventually you'll build trust in your own stuff and uh this will all make more sense or feel more comfortable i guess so i think that's all i wanted to say we're gonna just uh, get on to the video now and i hope that this i mean the intention of this is to kind of help fast track you towards where i'm at now with kind of an understanding of uh feeling like i have an understanding of what i can get away with and uh, what I need to do in certain situations that are not ideal for storing meat. And that's what a lot of the information I am I present is, is trying to just kind of like fast track people along to um, not have to go through as much stuff as I did to figure all this stuff out, I guess. Well, I got my second deer in evening of closing day. I feel very fortunate uh, to have gotten this deer. And um, I used to just gather and grow a lot more of my own food, but living by myself, taking care of this place and trying to do, you know, my website and YouTube and all that stuff just really cuts into the, the time. And there's some other reasons that I've eaten out of grocery stores a lot in the last two or three years. And um, I'm kind of over it, you know, and I want cleaner food. So um, I'm really happy to be putting some more meat in my freezer. Well, look at that beautiful carcass, nice and clean. So uh, now I'm just gonna wrap this in a sheet for the night to keep you know flies and yellow jackets off at early in the morning because it's a very warm night. And it's gonna be warm in the morning, so everybody will be out playing real early. So last night at about an hour and a half before hunting season ended, I got a deer, and I'm very happy about that. And now I have to deal with the carcass and all the parts and stuff like that, which I've kind of been starting to do today. Now, I thought this would be a great opportunity to talk about how to deal with meat, how to deal with carcasses when you have uh, conditions that may not be perfectly ideal. And this happens to me pretty much whenever I have a carcass. Uh, but there are strategies you can use to adapt to those situations to keep the meat from spoiling and maybe, um, you know, age it to improve it a little bit before you freeze it or eat it or whatever. Now, I thought this would be a great opportunity, especially because it's 103 degrees. I shot this in the evening last night, and it almost became warmer after dark. It was totally bizarre, and it was warm all night, and it's been warm all day and just slowly climbing and now it's about 2.30 probably so we're kind of hitting like the peak temperature right now and uh, I'm not worried about this carcass yet I'm not worried about it yet but I'm starting to get a little antsy to get it dealt with and that's what I'm doing as soon as we're 
on shooting this short video. So we have two main things going on here. One is we don't want our meat to spoil, and the other one is we may want to age it a little bit. And aging is basically just uh, the, meat, the meat improves as I think enzymes that are in the meat are active, tenderizing the meat, and the flavor changes too. I like aged meat um, for the most part, and I think it's a good thing to do, but you don't have to do it. And of course, that's very dependent on the animal. Some need it more, some need it less. So let's start with spoilage. So spoilage happens with moisture and heat, and you combine those two together, spoilage happens faster. So by eliminating one of those two or both of them, we can kind of manage the meat and slow spoilage. So here's a couple things that I'll do, for instance, to deal with those things when I don't have the ideal conditions, which would be a meat cooler. So in a meat cooler, the air is fairly dry. You put your carcass in there, it dries off on the outside, and it's at the temperature of like a refrigerator or close to that. So that's ideal conditions, and then you can age it in there for a week or more before you cut it up. But I don't have, ever have those conditions, and if even if they were available in town, which they probably are, I wouldn't take my meat, I'd drive it all the way to town, pay someone to hang it at a cooler, definitely wouldn't pay them to cut it up, and if anything, you can t end up tainting your carcass if the, the cooler isn't just super clean, um, you can end up tainting your carcass with like off flavors. So even if that was available to me in town, which it probably is, I wouldn't do it. I have other strategies that I use. So one thing is that you want the carcass to be dry and dry off on the outside. So, you know, last night I did a really clean job of gutting this and skinning it, and the carcass was just super clean. And then I took a knife and I cleaned up any bloody spots that were left. I did not wash it out at all because it was so clean it didn't need it. You know, if, if it's really super bloody inside, especially if you spill any guts or urine in there, then yeah, you need to wipe it down. But never just wash the whole carcass just just to wash it because that's not good. You're actually making it worse. You can introduce bacteria, move bacteria that's there already around. Better if it's just a nice, clean, skinned carcass. It'll start drying off right away, and that's what you want. So try to just do learn to do a really a clean job whenever you can, and then leave it to kind of dry. Now I wrapped this in a sheet to keep the bugs off because I knew the bugs would be out right away early in the morning. Um, we have meat bees and of course flies, so I didn't want them on the carcass, so I wrapped it up, but this breathes pretty well. If I was leaving this for longer though, I'd want like a mesh of some kind like mosquito netting or to put it in a screened room because then air could actually move across it and make sure that everything stays nice and dry and that all the little crevices and stuff would sort of dry out. And I'll uncover this soon, but I don't want to uncover it now because the, the uh, meat bees, yellow jackets, whatever you want to call them, ground bees, they're going to get all over this and uh, it's going to be a hassle. So another thing I did is I propped open the chest cavity. I split the ribs open with a knife, prop that open with a stick so that there, you know there's more air circulation and it's really going to dry out in the cavity quickly. So by doing that, I've eliminated moisture. Uh, of course, it's still moist inside the meat, but if it dries off on the outside and you don't have like colonies of bacteria starting to grow on the outside because it's wet, you know, and warm, and then those start to grow into the meat or whatever they do, and it spoils the meat. So that's not going to happen. And of course, you know, way inside the meat, it's not like the, the, the meat in there is clean. It's not like it's full of bacteria or something like that. Now, if you adopt that strategy, and especially if you let the carcass cool overnight and then keep it cold during the day, so if it's, it's cold at night and warm in the day, unwrap it and let it cool off like in the open air if possible without any wrapping or maybe mosquito netting if you need it. 
And then when it's cold, wrap it up for the day in blankets really tight and just keep it as cold as possible through the day. If it's already dry, that's the moisture's not gonna be a problem. I mean, don't use plastic. Never wrap a carcass in plastic if you can possibly help it. And you'd be surprised if you keep managing a carcass like that, or even if it's just really dry and very clean and kept away from insects, how long it will keep in warm weather and you can kind of just keep eating off it until it spoils or until you have time to do something else like dry it. So another thing I do, and what I'm gonna do with this right now, is I'll clean, I cleaned out the bottom like third of my refrigerator. I line that with butcher paper so it's nice and clean and then I'll cut this into manageable chunks and then I pack all that into the fridge and let it chill in there for two or three days and then I take it out cut it up and put it in the freezer so that allows me to make, let the meat age for a few days and um, it you know get, buys me time to another strategy you can use that my friend uses a lot hopefully you guys will meet him sometime in a video if he ever comes up here to visit um, we'll do some videos or something awesome dude awesome hunter Anyway, what he does a lot is with his game is he'll freeze it in packages and then take the packages out two or three days early and let them thaw in the fridge and they kind of age in there before you eat them. And I've done that too and it does work. So bullet points. Do a clean job of skinning if you can. Learn to do that. And do a nice clean job of gutting too. If you spill guts, you have to wash it. If you don't have to wash it, don't wash it, including the inside. I just ate the tenderloins out of this last night. You know, they're like inside the gut cavity against the back wall. Perfectly sweet, perfectly good without any washing or anything. So you don't need to wash it out. If you spill guts and stuff, literally wash it with water like a hose, but try not to get the outside of the carcass wet if it's not in need of washing. And if there's hair on it, don't try to wash the hair off, scrape it off. Because when you wash it, it'll just stick that much worse. It won't, it won't just wash off. <laughs> So don't wash it if you can help it. And then another thing you can do is take like vinegar water, soak a, a towel in that and wipe the inside all inside there. And that'll help kill bacteria, slow bacterial growth, and just clean the inside of the carcass out, especially if you've spilled something in there like guts or urine or whatever. Now urine's not a big deal. And even guts actually aren't that big of a deal if you just wash them out right away. But you do really need to get on that and wash them out. But when you're done with all of that, try to take a dry, clean towel and just get it kind of dry. Prop the chest cavity open and let the carcass dry out unless you're, you know, headed straight to a, a cooler or something like that. And I mean a game cooler. Don't um, take your meat, pack it warm, into cut it up, put it into coolers or wrap it in plastic or anything like that. And you don't want that thing where it's against something that doesn't breathe when it's warm and even if it's in a cooler with ice i mean you get into a cooler it's just not that cold it's not a refrigerator and if it's if the carcass is all wet or if it's like cut into pieces and they're packed in there wet that's kind of bad news now in the fridge it's different so when i put this pack this into the fridge um, it'll tend to start sweating and there'll be kind of wet parts packed together but it's going to cool way down and it'll be fine for a couple days like that but anytime you don't have ideal cool conditions, you really just want a, a dry glaze around the outside of all the natural pieces of meat, you know, not pieces cut up where you get bacteria introduced into those cuts and then they're packed together and sitting there wet. Don't do that. And if you're out hunting or camping or something like that and it's cool at night, let it cool at night and then wrap it up and insulate it for the day. So what I'm doing today is I'm going to unwrap this, start cutting it up, take the pieces in, get them small enough to pack in the bottom of the fridge which will turn into just one big old meat block basically and it'll be in there for two or three days 
and it may dry some of it, but most of it's going to get cut up in a few days and then packed into the freezer to be used as needed. Uh, we'll probably revisit some other parts of this gear though in other videos soon. Um, it started to cool down a bit, but it's still 99 degrees in here. And again, you know, I'm really still not worried about this yet. You know, the more time that it's out in this kind of temperatures, the faster it's going to age. And, you know, the less it'll keep, like if I, let's say I freeze it and then I thaw a piece out and I have it in the fridge for a few days. You know, I mean, it affects all of that stuff. But in terms of this, like, you know, spoiling... I'm still perfectly good if I get this cut up within like a couple of hours, put in the fridge for a couple of days, and then I can cut it, freeze it, and I still can thaw it out and keep it for a couple of days. So, you know, I've got working time. It's not as horrible as you might think if things start to heat up, but there's a limit to obviously. You don't want to, you know, kind of procrastinate or anything, but you do have some working time as long as everything's clean and you've kept your, you know, meat nice and dry. All right, picture this. It's a post-apocalyptic world, and your garden failed. And actually, who wants a garden anyway? Let's be honest. There's, Need protein. There's nobody that's... Exactly. Did you know that literally every cell in your body needs protein? Today, you're going to see a first. You're going to see the bearded butchers get to try the greatest of all time, the goat. Goat has never touched these lips. Well, and other than the form of cheese, how about you? Never had goat. Have had goat milk, goat cheese, but never goat meat. Here's the great thing about goats. Goats are in about 63% of the world. So the idea is that they're a heck of a lot easier to keep as livestock for a multitude of reasons. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that later. But first, we want to get into this goat. We're going to bust off the hind haunches. And we're going to do one of them slathered up with olive oil and Cajun. And we're going to do one of them just straight plain. And we're going to hang it over a barrel. And we're going to smoke them. And we're going to carve off slices as we're cutting this goat. So the idea is a goat can be the ultimate companion animal because it's going to give you milk. It's going to give you a hide. But most importantly, it's going to give you protein. Plus... If you butcher a cow, let's say you are in a post-apocalyptic world, you're bugging out. You can take the goat with you. You cannot take a cow in your car. Plus, if a cow produces six gallons of milk, what are you going to do with it in a day? The goat is the perfect animal. One of the first animals that we have evidence of domestication, goats have been alongside humankind of all, all, you know, for a long time. And Americans, they kind of treat goats 
like, you know, the rest of the world recognizes soccer. Goats are kind of like the soccer to the rest of the world. These things aren't consumed that much by Americans, but the rest of the world knows them and loves them. So I don't know if you've had goat, but today we're going to try goat. So with no further ado, Seth's going to bust this thing off of here. We're going to get some haunches off here and get them smoking over the fire. So we're pretty much just going to break this down like you would a deer or a lamb. And today we're going to be using a handsaw. We're going to be using our knives. So we're not going to be using a bandsaw or anything like that. So let's just get started. Knife and saw, pretty easy tools to get yourself a goat. And the thing about it is a lot like a deer, but you got to... You gotta catch a deer. You gotta have bullets. A goat, you can literally lay, raise a small herd of goats from young. They don't need much fencing. Children can uh, care for them. Children can milk them. They're not going to harm anybody in that sense. And they're a browsing animal versus a grazing animal. So the resources, the water, the, the water sources, the food sources that a goat requires are incredibly more resourceful than that of larger livestock. So the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to go ahead and break these haunches off of here. And then, like Scott mentioned, we're going to get these hung over the birch barrel. And we're going to get these cooking. And then while the haunches are cooking, we're going to continue processing the rest of the goat. We'll get it all laid out here on the table. And we'll show you guys what it looks like laid out on the table. So I'm going to start by pulling these tenders out just like you would a deer. Now this is a, a boar goat, as in B-O-E-R. That's the breed of the goat. These originated from South Africa. And um, this guy was just under a year old. It was a weather goat, so it means it had been castrated. Obviously all this different stuff plays into the, the flavor of the goat. Um, <clears throat> this guy was 71 pounds dressed. Uh, we butchered him right in our butcher shop. And... Uh, yeah, like we said, just a, a super resourceful animal. And we're going to find out what this meat's like in just a few short minutes. So start by pulling those tenders out of there. Now we want to cut this right by that H-bone through that, through that hip bone. Move this portion to the side. And then from here, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pull this H-bone out of here, making this a semi-boneless leg. That way when we hang it over the birch barrel, it cooks up a little bit quicker for us without this bone on there. Using a little bit of that downward pressure that we talk about. There's one. You take the tip of your knife, find that ball joint right there, cut through that ball joint. Staying along the bone, let's remove that H bone right out of there, that hip bone. Now what we're left with is these two goat haunches. So these, we're going to take, we're going to throw a wire through the hock. We're going to hang these up, hang them over the birch barrel, 
and let's get them cooking. I mixed up olive oil and our Cajun blend spice. So I'm going to mop this guy with the Cajun olive oil mixture and just get him all slathered up. And we're gonna kind of treat it like a, almost like a gyro. We're gonna, we're gonna hang it over the fire and as it cooks, I'm gonna keep slathering. So we wanna make this one as tasty as possible, but we're gonna try the other one as a blank slate first. It's also important to point out what we're doing today requires absolutely zero electricity, assuming that electricity may not be an option for you given the circumstances. Sprinkle a little extra on there. Well, that's you never, looking, never have. That's looking delicious. Too much. I didn't realize you were a uh, such a good artist. Wow, that looks good. What do you think? Beautiful. Get it hung. Get him over the fire. So today we're using the birch. This represents if you had a open barrel. So again, just kind of playing off of those resources that are limited. I'm already getting hungry. So you've got the warmth of the fire. Now you tell me that in that short span, you aren't starting to feel really good about your life right now because there is just nothing quite like roasting meat over a fire. It's primal, it's timeless, and you can forget about gardening and trying to raise all your, you know, crops and things because you're going to get a protein source. This goat is converting vegetation that you can't eat into a number one resource for your well-being. So as these guys sit here and smoke, we're going to get back to cutting this goat. Seth put me to work doing the, um, the more tedious work, the deboning. It's also... It should be pointed out that something like this, this goat, hits the middle of winter here in Ohio, and you know, talk about meat preservation. We're gonna get we're gonna get into that in some more of our videos. Basically, how you can prepare meat so that you don't need refrigeration um, to to carry you for at least a month. And the point I'm making here, though, is if we have 30, 40 pounds of goat meat. You don't have to worry about that this time of year. You can literally keep it outside and you're going to be able to consume that amount. If you have a, a beef cow, um, something larger, you know, you have to start thinking about three, four, six, eight, ten months of consumption. But with a goat, you can literally just butcher them as you need. One month supply basically right there on hand. So we remove the inner loins. We remove the hind quarters, the, those haunches, which we have hanging over the barrel. The next thing I want to do is remove these front shoulders. So just remember, just like the deer processing, um, just like the lamb, once you find, figure out the anatomy of the animal, find those muscle seams, they're all pretty much the same. So just going to start right up here at this front shank. We're going to find that seam, pulling with a little bit of pressure. Let's just circle all the way down around that shoulder blade removing that whole front shoulder just like that. So we'll get that one off of there, flip it over, 
Do the same thing with this side. These are another two pieces that you could throw over fire. Well, literally any of the animal you can do that, but also great roast stew portions. Typically the front portion of the animal is just gonna be a, a bit tougher than the rear portion. Now let's go ahead and remove these loins, these back straps, like, like the same thing in a venison. So we're just gonna pull this flank portion back. We're gonna cut down along these ribs. We're gonna bring that all the way up to that neck. Now we're gonna start right here just like you would on a, on a deer. And we're just gonna slowly work our way down along these rib bones, all the way down to that back. And we'll pull this whole loin section out of here. Just trying to stay as close to those bones as we can. Now, find that vertebrae. Take your knife, cut right along that vertebrae all the way up, releasing that back strap, that loin. Slowly pulling it out as far as you can go up to that neck. And there you have a goat back strap. Since I'm already on this side, I'm going to go ahead and Remove some of this rib meat. This we will just turn into ground product, ground goat. Actually, this would be a good time to talk about what we're going to do with some of the trimmings. What we're going to do is we're going to, in, a, in, a, in another video, not this one, we're going to turn some of these goat trimmings into like a kippered style goat jerky using the meat dehydrator so stay tuned for that so here again it's going to stay right up along the bones you can see those rib bones right there a little more fat than what i'm used to on a deer So go ahead and get that loin opened up. And you want to come on this side, cut down along that back, that vertebrae. All the way up to that neck. And there you have two goat loins. Let's go ahead and take this rib meat off. that. I'll hand that over to Scott. So with the neck, several different things you could do with that. You could make it into a roast. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to break it off this carcass. Finding that vertebrae. Pop through it. 
So you could save this as a roast if you wanna do a, a goat neck roast. Today, we're just gonna trim it out for ground meat. I wanted to point out, we start out the kids a lot of time in the shop with one of these. It's, um, it's just till you get the hang of a steel like that, this, this can be a great alternative. And really it just has your sharpening uh, portion in there. And that's something that we start our kids out in the shop just because it takes a little bit longer to learn the technique of a regular steel. So goat shoulder, right here's your shoulder blade. I'm just gonna start up here at the top of the shoulder blade. We're gonna remove this shank. You can save this as a roast if you'd like. Make a nice goat shoulder roast. Pretty simple. Shoulder blade roast, you could take your handsaw, you can cut this in half if you'd like. Right here you have a goat shank. What we're just gonna do today is, you could make it into asabuco or something like that if you'd like, but today we're just gonna trim this out for our goat ground meats. Obviously things like fat, bones, those aren't gonna go to waste. Great energy resources. Bones make good bone broth, fertilizer once uh, they're cooked down. Fat, tallow, soap making, candles, an baiting animal traps. Um, number of different resources inside this animal, not just the actual muscle, but the fat and bone as well. Some goats, they use the, the hair for fiber making. Of course, the hide's not gonna go to waste. You can use that for clothing. Uh, flasks over, over history, those have been used for wine making, water carrying, even parchment. You can see that we're moving through this goat pretty quick. Um, and, the, and the goal here is to get as much trimmings to produce ground products as possible because we are going to turn this into a dehydrated food. Dehydrated food, obviously, in this environment, um, sort of that prepping lifestyle is going to last the longest. It's something that you can uh, throw in your backpack, you can hit the ridge, and it's going to last you a while. So keep in mind as we're processing this goat, we are trying to achieve as much ground product as possible that we can turn into further into uh, a kippered-style jerky. So let's go ahead and get started on this goat loin we're just going to find that seam and then we're going to pull this fat off the back just like that much smaller loin than what you would even find on a on a deer not just not a lot of size to it you want to Move that little piece of gristle along the edge. And then just like the deer, we want to use that fish fillet method. It's a little bit a little bit uh, a little bit stickier than what deer meat would be. Just a little has a little bit of stickiness to it. Makes it a little bit more difficult to take like that. Sinew off of there.
get it trimmed up. Move that little piece of gristle. Now start up at this end. There you have some goat loins, same as a backstrap on a deer. Now what I'm going to do with these is we're just going to cut them up into some chops. Cut them about an inch and a quarter to an inch and a half thick. Just like that. There you have some goat chops. Goat sirloin steaks. I'm gonna cut a few of these. So you can see that the cuts that we got off this goat, there isn't, there isn't a lot, but that's kind of what we were trying to achieve anyway. So what we wound up with was just a few, half a dozen or so of those goat sirloins. We've got the goat chops. We have the inner loins. We have a couple roasts. And then we have our two haunches that are cooking over the birch barrel. And we have a nice pile of probably 25 pounds of trimmings that we're gonna turn into our kipper style jerky. So that is the processing on a goat incredibly easy we did that in probably about 15 20 minutes don't let it be intimidating find those muscle seams get a good sharp knife and uh, a good work surface you can do it it's time you ready i think so first time we try goat This is unseasoned, just cooked smoked goat. Oh, oh my goodness, dude. It's delicious. Not what I expected at all. No. I'm shocked. It has absolutely no gamey flavor. Zero. It's just incredibly like tender, Tastes like, like eating really, really good really venison good, or really beef good, or really steak. Good steak. Yeah, that's just the raw, no, no seasoning. Just get in here, guys. Come on, Dan. Come on, Shame. We actually have my doppelganger. This is Dan. Not only are we both incredibly intelligent, we're all incredibly good looking because we look similar. Dan's our product manager, guys, so if something crazy. goes out of stock, uh, uh, and then we have, then we have Shane, our nephew, who raised the goat. our other nephew, Spencer's the one nephew behind the camera. Shane 
Shane's the guy who raised the goat, so he's our farmer. We know what he's doing in the uh, post-apocalyptic You know what I'm counting on, Shane? You, you to grow a black beard like me and not red like these I guys. don't know. It's kind of blonde. <laughs> All right, plain goat. Incredible. Now it's time that we try some of this Cajun seasoned goat. I think I'm going to go right over here, Spencer. You want to just grab that side? I'm going to cut it. The other side. There you go. Oh, oh my oh. goodness. You guys. Wow. That right there. Wow. Boy, did we kick her up a notch. Yeah. <laughs> that is incredible. You might as well be at a high-end restaurant somewhere. Yeah, that is incredible. Here goes Spencer, open up. <laughs> oh, wow, I'm nice. impressed. I am too. That, that is not what I expected at all. Tasty, tasty protein. So we wanted to incorporate the spice because that's one of the things that we talk about all the time. Um, let's say you you are eating something much gamier than that. That was incredible. I think that had a lot to do with the the care and, and, and everything like that. But it makes it much more palatable um, when you have that spice. We've got folks that have used ours in the African bush to make biltong. And um, it's gonna lead us into the next video where we talk a little bit more about the meat preservation and how you can do this. But today, I mean, we could literally sit around this all day, keep ourselves warm and just carve off pieces and feast, load up. Man, that's enjoyable. Delicious. Our goat is now done. And one of the things that I wanted to do was get myself a bunch of little strips. And I wanted to go down through the smorgasbord here of original. Let me see that knife. Oh, man. That was just. That's meat heaven. Black. Got that sweetness, that little bit of that deep, rich coffee flavor. Chipotle, cool and smoky. Yeah, try the black on the goat. The spice adds so much depth. Now, I've already had Cajun because we had it on there, but that is a that is a really good point because if you do get an animal that's very gamey or goat, for instance, where it has any off-putting flavors or anything like that. The seasoning will enhance the flavors to the point where you can eat it. It's so delicious. I think I'm going to go with some black. So, <clears throat> today you got to see us do what we consider the ultimate prep for animal and something new that we had never tried, which was goat. Way better than I ever expected. Thrilled with the experience, thrilled with the, um, the results. Obviously, the Bearded Butcher Blend spices and sauce are just going to enhance the experience. But what we have here, we've got obviously the, the steaks, a couple of nice roasts, some trim meats. This is it for today. We're going to follow up down the road with some more of the um, further preparation so we can help um, educate you guys on how you can preserve meats. But this was a great start. We hope you liked it. 
We certainly did. It was one of our favorites, and we look forward to doing many more of these next time. Absolutely delicious. So now we're in the next step. Um, we'll start taking the meat off, off of our carcass here. What I like to do is start right in the center, and there's a bone. The pelvis bone is right underneath. So I, I just make a cut right through the muscle, and I go right down to the bone. And I go just as straight as I can until I hit bone. Then I'll cut on the side. And I'll just kind of work my way down to the ball and socket. And this will just naturally want to fall down and open up. So I like to hold it right inside of there. And I let gravity, let gravity help you out. And just cut nice and easy right against the bone. Now, when you get to the ball and socket, you can see it starting to open up right there. There's a tendon inside the ball that has to be cut off. That's really strong tendon and helps hold the joint together. I'll cut right against that and then cut around the sides of the ball where the, the ligaments hold the socket together. Then we'll continue down the front just a little bit and we'll stay on the side of things. Let me get this out of the way right here a little bit. Separate these two so you can kind of see what's going on. Now I'll come back to the top and just, just cut right on the side of the bone. This is really easy to do, not complicated at all. The, a hole will develop right here, and what you want to do is just cut right along the edge of that hole, and st again, stay right against the bone as you go. When you, after you've done it a few times, you'll learn the shape of the pelvis bone, and all you have to do is just keep staying against it and let, let gravity pull on the hind quarter. You don't want to drop it, so keep a good grip on it. But it's really, it would be the same thing for an elk or a moose or a caribou, anything like that. And it'll just keep, now see this is all bone right here. A little tiny bit of meat right there, but the majority of it's all bone. Just cut right against that side of that bone and work your way forward. Now once we get to, you can see where it's kind of flat here. Now we can just cut straight across. And we've got that whole quarter all ready to go to the, that could even go to the meat cutter just like that or right to the cutting board. If there's any hairs, go ahead and pull them off. The hair won't really hurt too much, but try and keep that to a minimum. And we've taken one quarter off. The next thing that we'd go after, if, if I'm going to do the next cut, will be to go right down the sides of the backbone and come right to the front shoulder here. And this is the back strap, which is right along the edge of the backbone right there. And some of the best meat on the whole deer, I think, is right here. Let's set this right on the cutting board. Or, and we'll go after a back strap. Take your knife and cut right along the bumps. Uh, you'll be able to feel the bumps on the backbone. Cut right next to each one of those bumps and cut as deep as you can. You'll go right against the backbone and the rib cage as you go, but just cut right next to it and against the bone as you work your way down. Now, I'll just grab this upper corner and again, stay right against the bone. Now the bone is, is bumpy and there's a lot of different grooves and little humps to it, but that's okay. Just take your time and cut as close to the bone as you can all the time, slowly working your way down. This will just slowly roll out into your hands. There's a pretty good layer of sinew 
and of course that outside layer of fat that will help hold this whole piece right together. And once you get started, you'll see there's a, little, a lot of little small like rib bones that are in the back here. And you just cut against each one of those as you work your way down. fairly cool, a lot of times you can almost like pull this whole piece out. But I like to trim it and try and get every little bit that I can come with it. And then once we get to the front shoulder here, then we can just cut the whole thing right off straight. And we have the entire back strap all in one piece with the fat and the sinew on that side holding it all together. And we'll lay that right on the cutting board. And we'll do the same thing to the other side right down through them. And basically we've gotten to everything um, and there's nothing but bone all the way down there. fairly simple. You want to think of it as simple. And then it can be simple. <laughs> it's not real complicated. Don't worry about screwing things up. Um, that stops a lot of people from doing a lot of things. They're worried about making a mistake. Making mistakes is part of learning. And it's an important part. Don't let it bother you. There's really no failing. Again, trim it right off. So now we've gotten all of that nice meat off both sides of the rib cage. If you like ribs, which I do, I will find the, the very last rib and then trim just above that very last rib. And this flank, this can be a little bit of a flank steak if you want to cut some of that and save it. Um, we're not going to on this fella, but if you really like ribs, I'll now take my saw and I'll saw down the side of it right here. And then whatever size that you like your ribs, say six inches long, I'll make another cut right down the side and then come over here and make one more cut down here and then take my knife and trim it. And now I've got four, five, six nice pieces of ribs to put right on the grill. Those things are excellent. Um, and the same thing here, we can, we can cut that right open and get the upper part of the rib right there and trim the ribs. On the inside, There'll be some fat that's right near the kidneys right here. I'll trim some of that fat off. We can put that inside. The tenderloins are on each side of the backbone on the inside right here. Um, basically the same thing that we did before. We just kind of push on it a little bit and we go right down the center, nice and gentle. And then we come crossways. If you're in the woods and you had to spend the night with your deer like I did one time, I reached inside and cut this piece of meat out and cooked this while I was in the woods. Had a little fire and this is something that you can take out of the deer and have right on the spot if you ever needed to. And I had one time in the woods I did have to do that because I was starving and this was a really, this is the best softest cut of meat right there, the tenderloins on the inside. Now to take off the front quarter, you can continue down through just like we did on the back strap. Stay right next to the backbone. 
cut down to where the shoulder ends, then stay right against the ribs. And again, that, that big muscle that's running right down the back bone itself, right in that corner, is probably one of the better cuts from this whole piece. forward and have all this all in one great big piece. And then separate that from the neck. And then you have a nice big front quarter. Do the same thing to the other side. I do everything boneless um, but you don't have to and you could actually if you wanted to take a saw and saw it all off in one big piece then I usually pull the trachea that's his uh, voice box right there and the trachea I would usually pull that right out of it and get that disconnected from from the meat so don't I don't want to have that in there if you just kind of pull on it gently Pretty much cut on each side of it and work the whole thing right now. Now once this process is completed, if you want to take the time to go through and trim some of the little pieces of meat that are left here and there that you that are the bigger ones that you'd like that are on the the carcass, you certainly can. And a lot of that would be some ground meat of some kind. Uh, the other thing that I'll often do is take a, a section of bone and cut it all loose and then I'll put it right in the freezer and uh, when when the time comes and Annie's looking for something to eat, I'll uh, take it out and put it in a pot and boil it for 10 minutes and then I give it to the dog and it gives the dog something to chew on. But it, the, the boiling helps make sure to get rid of parasites. If there's there happens to be anything on the meat at all, it's a good idea to cook it just a little bit first before you give it to the dog. I don't like to give the dog raw, dog raw wildlife to eat. It's not a good idea. They will. She'll eat it, but I definitely don't like to give it. I'd hate to have her catch something. Not much for a neck on this deer. It being summertime, everything's pretty small. Um, but a a bigger buck in the fall will have quite a bit of meat on his neck. And a lot of this can be ground or cut into strips and make jerky or sausage out of it. There'll be a little bit of a brisket uh, steak along the bottom right here that's a good sized piece that can be saved. Now we're right down to just cutting our ribs and saving those and then taking the other hind quarter off, but that's pretty much what's involved with it. and. You're kind of looking at it, I guess. <laughs> well, we have our hindquarter on the table now. Got my leg in and out of the way. 
We, first thing we can do is separate that and get it right out of our get it right out of our way here. Now we have the hind quarter. I like to start on the inside with the ball up. If uh, you want to smoke it, it's a great idea. Uh, I usually will send it to the smokehouse just like this. Um, they'll put a tag around it. They'll uh, put in some injections, some salt into it and stuff and smoke it and it makes a beautiful ham. Consider that sometime. Uh, when it comes time to cut a hind quarter up, I like to start on the inside where the ball and socket is. And I'll cut right towards the ball and socket and I'll take, you can see where the muscles come together right here, and I'll try and separate each muscle and cut towards the bone. If you want to know where the bone is, feel free to stop and, and, and look for it and feel it and try and cut right down to the bone itself and work your way right towards the joint. Again, stay right against the bone. And you can see where the muscles separate a little bit and where they come apart. So just, just cut right where the muscles separate and where the all one piece wants to come loose. Just like so. You'll get one big nice piece right out of it. There's a single one. And there's another one right below it right here. Again, stay right against the bone and separate the bone. Any of the fat or the tendons or anything that you're not going to be eating, you can go right ahead and trim that off. Separating each of the muscles as you go, all into pieces. You don't have to do it too many times and you'll learn where all those, each big muscle is and how it works and how it's attached fairly easy to do. Let's just slide this right out of the way for a minute. Now what I'll do is after I've trimmed it and cleaned it up some, I'll take it and I'll trim the very end off. Usually that tends to be a little tough right there. That can be some ground, some ground meat, some kind. I'll set up a couple of plates so that I can separate things even more. And I usually have a box or something or a trash can close by to throw a lot of the fat and the pieces that I'm not looking for into it. Then, myself, I like to cut it right dead center. I'll, I'll cut right cross grain right in the middle of that muscle. Then I'll go through and I'll go about three-eighths of an inch and I'll cut off little small stakes and work my way down through. If the meat is chilled, it won't want to roll around so much and it'll be a little stiffer and your, your steaks will come out a little, little neater and a little, little easier to cut cross grain and stuff. Nice, long, sharp knife is, is a good idea. Be careful, take your time. Some of the, the tips of the muscles will be the, the tougher part. A lot of those chunks, I'll, I'll cut them in half and turn them into small cubes for, for stew meat. Uh, these steaks, I'll just trim that little bit of fat off the edges of them and I'll put them on a separate plate 
and I usually try and get about a frying pan full. That's about the proportion that we eat, or the size portion we eat. I'll take a little bit of uh, some, this is press and seal, and I'll take a, a chunk of press and seal and rip it off, spread it out, and I'll put that portion of whatever steaks and pieces that, I, that we, my family would eat at, at, a single, at a single serving or at a group serving. About enough to fill a frying pan is about what we usually go through. So I'll cut all those little steaks. I'll set them right inside of something. Then I'll take the press and seal and I'll try and get as much air away from them as possible. And I'll squish it all down. The press and seal sticks to itself pretty well. And I'll fold it up. And I have a little bit of masking tape and I'll tape those two together. And then I've got that now pretty well sealed and as much uh, air away from it as possible. And then I'll take a gallon Ziploc bag and I'll slide a whole bunch of these like four different good sized packages of meat into my gallon Ziploc bag. And then I'll just reach in, take one out. Um, it's good for six or eight months or so in the freezer. And uh, uh, I have pretty good luck doing that. It's not real complicated, uh, pretty easy to do. Um, it's time consuming. and. If we, sometimes we'll go deer hunting for a week and we come back with two or three deer and it's gonna take quite a while for all of us to process it and whatnot and I like to process my own deer meat so I will take a hind quarter and wrap it fairly tight even in the press and seal, put the whole thing in the freezer and then you don't be afraid to put it in the freezer and then a week from now on a weekend um, and I wanna cut up some meat, I'll take that one quarter out and I'll thaw the whole quarter out and I'll go ahead and cut it up and then repackage it all and put it right back in the freezer and it's fine. Uh, we do that on a steady basis so it doesn't hurt anything. Um, pretty easy to do. You can cut it up at your leisure that way. Uh, for the back straps, uh, those, the very best pieces, again, I do the same thing, cut it right in half, then, then hold it in place and make about a 3 8 inch steak. Um, if you like them a little thicker, um, you can definitely cut them a little thicker. Myself, I, I like them thin and I like to cook them fairly quick. Uh, most of the time they cook in about 10 minutes or so, the steaks. So when I've got all the rest of the food all ready to go, you know, my lettuce or whatever else I'm having with it, potatoes or whatnot, I'll have all that ready to go. Then I'll just cook up the venison real quick like and set all those medallions right inside of the uh, frying pan. And I, I like butter Butter, onions, and a little Montreal seasoning. A uh, little ketchup sometimes right in the frying pan with it is good too. That tomato sauce is really nice. Um, there's a million different ways to cook it, but um, those those little medallions off the back straps are probably some of the best. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more like it, you can do three simple things right now. One, you can subscribe permaculture freedom podcast if you haven't yet number two you can leave a short review for us on itunes and third share this episode with a person in your life you think would enjoy it too thank you i really appreciate your support until next time take care my friend